Well, I would invite you to open your Bible to Titus chapter 3. Titus chapter 3 for our final time studying Paul's letter to his ministry partner Titus on the island of Crete. Also, just to give you a heads up, uh, the rest of the month of May, we will be having Pastor Allen and uh, Pastors Paul Shirley and David Jordan fill the pulpit uh, while I'm preparing to preach more regularly through another book of the Bible, which I've yet to decide uh, starting in June. But here in Titus chapter 3, verses 12 to 15, we find personal instructions between Paul and Titus and regarding their ministry partners. And this is one of those portions of Scripture that's so easy for us to just skip over and yada, yada, yeah, whatever. I don't need to know those details. But I hope what you'll find this morning is that every word of God is true and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and training in righteousness, and that you'll find there are helpful principles that we can learn as we meditate on these instructions. Follow along as I read verses 12 to 15 of Titus 3. When I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, make every effort to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Diligently help Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their way so that nothing is lacking for them. Our people must also learn to engage in good deeds to meet pressing needs so that they will not be unfruitful. All who are with me greet you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. Before we look at these verses, I think it would be helpful for us just to set in the context of our minds how Christ builds and moves in His church and how He continues to do that even today. When we think about how Christ established and built His church, the first thing we have to say is that Christ is sovereign and He's all-powerful and He does not need anyone to help Him in his moving and working in the church. In Acts 17, as Paul preached to pagan Greeks, he said this, The God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath in all things. So God doesn't need to involve people in order to accomplish his will. If he wanted to, he could work directly and immediately in the lives and hearts of individuals to save them, reveal truth to them, and sanctify them. If he can simply speak the universe into existence, surely he doesn't need anyone's help to do lesser things. I trust we would all affirm that. But think about it. We live in a world where efficiency and productivity are highly valued. With technology, we're becoming more able to remove human beings from the process of uh, production more and more, whether it's precision robots that make cars or kiosks where you can order at a restaurant. The human race understands that the more you remove people from the equation, the better. It's faster, it's more consistent, there are less errors. 
And so there would be no more efficient way for God to accomplish His purposes on this earth than to do it on His own without the involvement of anyone else at all, especially such faulty people as ourselves. If he didn't want to, he wouldn't have to put up with stammering tongues or fearful hearts or prideful attitudes or self-seeking personalities. If God didn't want to, he, would have, he wouldn't have to be limited by weak minds and lack of education and faulty interpretations. He wouldn't have to be hindered by weak and dying bodies, geographical boundaries, building capacity limits. He doesn't have to be hampered by a lack of missionaries or inadequately trained pastors or conflict-ridden ministry teams. The reality is by introducing the human element into the worldwide enterprise of evangelism and discipleship, there are all kinds of hindrances and limitations and inefficiencies that are introduced. Again, I say God has the right and the ability to save and sanctify anyone, anytime, anywhere, without the involvement of human agency. He can shine the light of Christ into the heart and reveal himself to them. He can open their minds to the truth simply by putting that truth into their mind so that they grow in sanctification and he can bring transformation in their heart. And then he can take them to glory without anyone ever interacting with that person a day in their life. He could do that, but he doesn't do that. He chooses to involve finite, weak, and sinful humans in almost every stage of salvation and sanctification. Rather than working directly and immediately in the hearts of his people, he works through the preaching of the gospel and through the ministry of the word as we receive it from those who are around us. And if someone were to say, well, aren't there those people who read the scripture and they're saved just by reading the scripture? The answer is yes. Yes, that does happen. But how do they have a Bible in front of them? It takes thousands of people to translate and to edit and to produce and manufacture and sell Bibles, enabling someone to even read God's Word. So the question is, why? If that is so inefficient, if, if he could be far more effective in accomplishing his will on the earth without us, why does he involve us? Well, consider these passages, 1 Corinthians 2, verse 3 to 5. I was with you, Paul says, in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstrations of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. Or consider 2 Corinthians 5, 7, or 4, 7. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. By earthen vessels, Paul refers to the weakness of our body. And he's saying that God demonstrates his power not by sidestepping human weakness, but by working through it. He delights in saving people through messengers who are weak and through a gospel that sounds like foolishness to those who don't believe. This is what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 1.21. For since in the wisdom of God, 
The world through its wisdom did not come to know God. God was well pleased through the foolishness of what the, of the message preached to save those who believe. So God uses weak vessels, you and me, to demonstrate His power. God doesn't need humans to accomplish His will, but He chooses to use even us. Even though it's inefficient, because he wants to show his power over human weakness. Now we could go one step further to ask, how does God manage his people? How does God work through his people in order to accomplish his will? And the answer is God uh, works through his people in as many ways as there are people to work through. He manages his people in as many ways as there are people to manage. God prepares each individual, you and me, by supplying gifts through His Spirit, by giving us education and life experience and bringing relationships into our lives and opportunities around us in order to use us in unique ways. Ephesians 4, 7 says, But to each one of us, that's you and me, each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Meaning Christ determined how much he wanted to give to us. And so that was what was given to us. And he gives examples. He gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. We see the same truth in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, where it says, now there are varieties of gifts, but the same spirit. There are a variety of ministries, but the same Lord. There are a variety of effects, but the same God who works all things in all persons. Now listen, but to each one, no one is excluded. To each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. So God gifts all believers uniquely. There are no two believers who are the same, even with similar gifting like preaching or teaching or leadership or administration or serving. There's, there's differences in how we manifest and how we exhibit those gifts among us. And beyond that, not only does he give us gifts, but he moves us and he places us wherever he wants us, however he desires to do that. The way he moves us, the way he takes us from place to place, where he positions us, where he lands us in a local church, where he places us geographically, that also is varied along with the uniqueness of the gifts that we are given. And we're not like chess pieces that we can only move in certain ways depending on what kind of a piece that we are. God moves in, in wonderful, rich, and diverse ways. For example, God walked with Adam and Eve. I mean, he walked with them and he gave them a direction. He spoke to Noah directly and gave him instructions on how to build the ark. He spoke to Moses through the burning bush and commissioned him with instructions. He spoke to David through prophets and through the ephod. Jesus in the New Testament went up to each of the disciples whom he chose and said, follow me. And he walked with them for three years. He appeared to Paul in a blinding light, but then he gave him Ananias to give him instructions on what he should do. And then as Paul went from town to town, sometimes Paul, uh, the Lord would redirect him, stopping him from going where he was intending to go or keeping him uh, somewhere else, telling him to go somewhere else. 
As Paul traveled with his ministry partners, he would have them come along with him or he would send them off to various missions to to deliver letters and check up on churches. There are no instructions in Scripture on how God's people should move around. You know, when to stay, when to go, what process to follow when sending out a missionary or when hiring a pastor. And as I've tried to point out, not only are there no instructions given, but there is an explicit example given that God works in all kinds of ways with every individual person. Sometimes he moves people in ways that make sense. Sometimes he moves in ways that doesn't make sense to us, but makes perfect sense to him. Just to give you one example, in Acts 6, there was a serious administrative need that was taking place. You may recall that there were Hellenistic widows who were not properly being cared for. And so the apostles said, we're not going to spend our time working on this, but this is critically important. So church, you come up with men who are spirit-filled, who are wise, and who can address this need in the church. And so the church lifted up or or brought a number of men to the apostles, and, and they were commissioned for that ministry. One of the men that was chosen to oversee that care of widows was a man named Stephen. And what did he do? He became a powerful preacher, and he became the, church, the first martyr of the church. Another one of those men was uh, Philip. After Stephen was martyred, Philip left Jerusalem, and the Lord used him to evangelize the Ethiopian eunuch and to go to Azotus and other places to proclaim the gospel. These were men who were put in positions of what we would consider to be deacons to serve administrative needs, and then the Lord moved them to become powerful preachers and evangelists. That was unexpected. It doesn't matter where we live or what culture we're a part of or what patterns we've established. Our tendency as as human beings is to assume that our normal way of doing things is the right way of doing things, or at least a wise and good way of doing things. Whether it's educational paths, how you progress in life, whether it's just family dynamics, what it, what, what, how we engage one another in the, in the home, whether it's dating philosophies or methods, or the things that we do in the context of the church, we don't have to go very far to realize that what I think is normal and right is different than what you think is normal and right. And it's definitely different than what a mature believer in Africa or Europe or Asia or South America thinks is normal and right. God accomplishes his work in our lives and he moves us around where he wants us to be in ways that are never replicated from one person to another person. Beloved, sometimes we get, we get caught up in how we think things, we should, things should go. We set up expectations for ourselves of how God is going to work in this situation. And this passage here in Titus 3 reminds us that God's ways are not our ways. God's thoughts are not our thoughts. In fact, from this passage, we can draw four principles of how the Lord works through his people. Four principles of how the Lord works through his people. Let's begin with the first principle. The Lord moves his people wherever he wills. I've already stated that, but we'll see see this here in the text. The Lord moves his people wherever he wills. Look at verse 12. 
When I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, make every effort to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Titus has served with Paul for a significant portion of Paul's ministry. According to Galatians 2, Titus traveled with Paul, excuse me, and often Paul would send Titus uh, to do to go places where Paul himself couldn't go as his representative. For example, Titus was the one that Paul chose to deliver the letter that we call 2 Corinthians. And that was a difficult assignment because the future of the church of Corinth was to be decided on the basis of how that church responded to this letter. Would they submit to the apostolic authority of Paul or would they go with the false apostles who were leading the church astray? Paul trusted Titus to handle that situation. Here on the island of Crete, Paul effectively entrusted Titus with the future of the churches on Crete because he was going to be the one to appoint the first generation of leaders on the island. So Titus traveled with Paul, and he also traveled on his own, carrying out Paul's instructions. But if church history is accurate, Titus was a Cretan by birth. And after Paul was martyred and Titus had the opportunity to choose what his ministry would be, he chose to go back to Crete and serve there as bishop until the end of his life. But think about it. Titus is there on the island right now. He's home, again, if church history is accurate. And so I can only imagine that his desire would be to stay. But Paul instructed him to leave. And we know that he does leave because at the end of 2 Timothy, Paul's last letter before he died, Paul says, I sent Titus to Dalmatia. So after either Artemis or Tychicus came, Titus went to Nicopolis and whatever transpired between there and the end of Paul's life, Titus continued to serve at Paul's, at Paul's right hand until Paul died. Well, not only did uh, Titus travel a lot, but also... So also did Tychicus and likely Artemis as well. We don't know anything about Artemis other than his name. This is the only time he appears in Scripture. But we do know some things about Tychicus. In Acts, we learn that Tychicus is from Asia. And Paul describes him as a faithful and beloved brother, minister. Tychicus delivered the letters of Colossians and Ephesians. And remember, Ephesians is is not just one letter written to one church, but it's a letter written to a number of churches. So Tychicus would have traveled around as Paul's uh, representative. And at the end of his life, Paul sent Tychicus to Ephesus to minister there, where Titus previous to him had served. Excuse me, where Timothy previous to him had served. So we don't know how Paul determined who to send, whether he chose Artemis or Tychicus. It may be that because of where Tychicus ended up later on in life, that Paul ended up sending Artemis to Crete. But Paul had a cadre of ministry partners that would travel with him and that he would would send out on mission trips, if you will, to do ministry on his behalf. And as the apostle of Jesus Christ, Paul took it upon himself the responsibility to, to train up men who would, he would then send out and delegate tasks as he saw fit. But he didn't do that willy-nilly. He didn't just choose any meeny, miny, mo. why don't you go? To some degree, he factored in the desires of the men around him. We learn in uh, Philippians that Epaphroditus, who was the one who delivered the letter of Philippians, 
He was chosen because he was the one who raised his hand and said, I really want to go there. I love these people. Paul strongly encouraged Apollos to go to Corinth, likely with Titus, but Apollos didn't want to go and Paul didn't force him. Paul himself generally went to places he wanted to go and didn't go places he didn't want to go. That was not always true. But as you look at how Paul and his fellow ministers traveled, one thing is clear. They went wherever the Lord sent them. Sometimes the Lord would providentially prevent Paul or others from traveling where they intended. Paul wrote to the Romans, I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented. Other times the Lord would providentially open up doors for longer ministry where they were at. Paul wrote to the Corinthians that he was staying in Ephesus because a wide door for effective service has opened to me. Whatever the case, Paul modeled and these men like Tychicus and Titus and Artemis exemplified this commitment that I'm going to go wherever the Lord sends me. Their highest commitments were to serve the Lord and to serve the needs of the church, not necessarily their own preferences and desires. And so as the Lord providentially moves us around, as He often does, we must take up our cross daily and follow Him. We can either be like Jonah, who uh, bucked up against the Lord's will and His purposes, or we can learn to see how the Lord is working and cooperate with that. Whether it was Titus or Tychicus or Artemis, serving as Paul's representative there on the island of Crete, they ultimately served as Christ's representative, and the Lord could use any of them to accomplish His purposes. Any one of them would have been able to fulfill the ministry that Paul had given, empowered by the Holy Spirit. And no doubt, each of them had their own giftedness, their own personality that would have colored or flavored their, the ministry there uh, differently. But that level of uniqueness between those different men would not hinder God's purposes. One lesson we can learn from this is that as the church today, we must be careful to not elevate our preferences and styles and processes to the level that we think God's purposes are best served. Excuse me, that God's purposes are best served in certain ways. Now, we should obviously operate on a practical level and do what is wise according to our culture and situation. But all of us, every single one of us has this pharisaical tendency to elevate our preferences and our desires and how we think things should go to God's, to the level of biblical wisdom. But where Scripture leaves room for freedom, we should apply wisdom while also being sensitive to the unique working of the Spirit. Why? Because the Lord moves His people wherever He wills. The Lord moves His people wherever He wills. That's principle number one. Principle number two that we can draw from how the Lord works in the church is the Lord gives diverse gifts to the church. The Lord gives diverse gifts to the church. Look at verse 13. Diligently help Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their way so that nothing is lacking for them. Well, it's not explicitly stated that uh, it may well be that Zenos and Apollos were the ones who delivered the letter to Titus. Whether or not that's the case, the instruction is clear. When they come, if they haven't come already, and they're going to continue on to fulfill Paul's mission for them, uh, make sure that they have everything they need. Send them on their way fully 
equipped. Now, Zenos clearly identified here as a lawyer, which could mean that he was a, an expert in Roman law. But his partnership with Apollos makes it almost certain that he was really an expert in Jewish law. Like Paul, it's possible that he was a converted Pharisee. Matthew twenty-two thirty-five refers to a Pharisee who challenged Jesus as a lawyer. And Acts 6, 7 tells us the word of God kept spreading and the number of disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem and a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. So it's possible that Zenos was a converted Pharisee. His name wouldn't indicate that. It's not a Jewish name. But then again, neither is Paul. And so he may have either changed his name or brought it. He may have been brought up in a mixed home like Timothy, who himself was taught the scripture from childhood and was able to handle God's word well. Now, you've heard Apollos' name mentioned before. Uh, Apollos is on the same level of Paul in 1 Corinthians, where the church was saying, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Paul, I'm of Cephas. So he was was elevated in the minds of many in the early church. Uh, Acts 18 introduces him to us by saying that a Jew named Apollos, an Alexandrian by birth, an eloquent man, came to Ephesus, and he was mighty in the Scriptures. At that point of introduction, he knew about Jesus, but he didn't know about the death and resurrection of Jesus. He he knew about the man Jesus before his death, his ministry, but he only knew about the baptism of John. And so Priscilla and Aquila taught him about the, the further details of the gospel and Christ. And the scripture says he became even more effective in preaching Christ. It goes on to say, He greatly helped those who believed through grace, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public demonstrating by the Scripture that Jesus was the Christ. So we have these two men, Zenos, who is a lawyer, and Apollos, who powerfully is able to demonstrate from the Scripture that Jesus is the Christ. He's mighty in the Scriptures. So undoubtedly, Paul used this dynamic duo of Zenos and Apollos to travel around to Jewish communities where people were being converted, and there needed to be a settling of debates of Jewish law, as we see even here on the island of Crete. Whether they were limited in their mission from Paul to just work there on Crete and then return, or whether they were to go elsewhere, it's clear that they were gifted in this way. And Titus, being a Greek, not being raised in the Jewish law, should give way for them to do what God had gifted them to do. So what principle can we draw from from this? I think there's at least two basic corollary principles. First is it's important to recognize the variety of gifts in the church. It's important to recognize the variety of gifts that the Lord gives to his church. Again, we know that every pastor and leader and minister in the church is not the same. We don't all know the same things. We don't all teach the same way. We don't all have the same personality or lead the same way. There are all kinds of differences among us. And while we might chalk that up a little bit, at least, to education or upbringing or experience or age, the reality is the differences among us, whether leaders or non-leaders, are intentional decisions made by God for the benefit of the church. Let me say that again. The differences among us are intentional decisions made by God for the benefit of the church. So we would do well to recognize and capitalize on those differences. 
Not that every person has a niche ministry that only they can fulfill and no one else can serve in that way. But it is true that as wisdom and opportunity dictates, we should not only ask, hey, is there anybody who can meet this need? But also, is there anyone in particular who would be best suited to meet this need? Now, let me be clear. We should all be willing to serve in whatever way is needed, like in the AV ministry or nursery or any other ministry. But it is appropriate to ask who would be most effective to meet a particular need. If and when we find such a person, we should recognize them, encourage them, commission them, however formally or informally, and provide resources, whatever they need to, to succeed in their ministry. Again, Paul says in Romans 12, 6, since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, each of us is to exercise them accordingly. So we are to recognize the uniqueness of the gifts the Lord has given us, and then we are to exercise them according to that uniqueness as much as we are able. And then he goes on in that passage to describe a variety of gifts as we also see in 1 Peter 4, 11 and other passages. It's not, that, it's not only our responsibility as individuals to recognize our own gifts and utilize our gifts, that is our responsibility, but it's also our responsibility as the church to recognize how God has gifted each other and others and give them opportunities for those gifts to be used. And that's really the second principle we can draw, that as we discern the varied gifts among us in the church, we should be eager to equip and release people to exercise their gifts. Now, that doesn't mean that we have to have a formal ministry for everything where every person has a ministry silo that they serve in. In fact, the vast majority of ministry that takes place in the church is informal, where there's no leader, there's no structure, there's no budget. It's just us practicing the one another's among each other according to our gifts. But this does mean that as we see the gifts that a person has, we should encourage them to use those gifts. And that's something that each one of us can do. I mean, parents, as you're raising your kids and you're observing how God has made them, how God has gifted them, you should be encouraging them to think about how they can serve the Lord with the gifts that God has given. As we get to know one another and learn about each other and experience life together and observe each other's giftedness and, and unique abilities. We should encourage each other to cultivate those gifts and pursue those things for the glory of Christ. That's part of what it means in Hebrews 10.24 where it says, let us stimulate one another to love and good deeds. In fact, if we see someone who is squandering their gifts, we can follow Paul's example, like what he said to Timothy, kindle afresh the gift of God which is in you. We should encourage others to use their gifts. Ministry leaders, as you get to know people in the church, you should not just be waiting for people to ask, hey, can I serve? You should be drawing people into your ministry to serve alongside you as opportunities allow. We should have the mindset even of always looking for our replacement. Thinking, Am I the best person to fill the role that I'm filling right now? Or is there another person more gifted than I that would be a greater blessing to the church? Here's really what it comes down to. Each one of us is essential to the life of the church and the health of the church. 
And each one of us is expendable at the same time. We know we're essential because God has given us unique gifts and he's given us life and breath and he's placed us in the local body. And that means he intends for us to use our gifts to benefit those whom he has placed around us. And as long as he does give us life, as long as he does keep, in, keep us in one place, he wants us to minister as a vital member of the body of Christ. But at the same time, we know that we are expendable because at any point he could move us elsewhere. He could take us to another state. He could take us to another country. He could take us to heaven. And if we're gone from this place, we can be confident that Jesus will take care of his church in our absence. And so we should be both faithful and committed to serve, but we should also serve by holding our ministry with an open hand. As long as the Lord gives us opportunity, we should be committed to that ministry and serve Him with all that we're able to give. But if the Lord takes it away, we should not clutch onto that ministry as if it belongs to ourselves. Now, look again at verse 14 and notice how he says that we must learn to give. Excuse me, I skipped a page. the way we can have this attitude of open-handedness is by remembering that God moves his people around wherever and however he wills. And he also gives diverse gifts in the local church. And so we should recognize that and celebrate that. A third lesson we can learn about how the Lord works in his church is found in verse 14. The Lord gives us opportunities to be fruitful. The Lord gives us opportunities to be fruitful. Look again at verse 14. Our people must also learn to engage in good deeds to meet pressing needs so that they will not be unfruitful. Unlike foolish controversies that are unprofitable and worthless, according to verse 9, and contrary to false teachers who profess to know God, but by their deeds deny Him and thus are worthless for any good deed, according to chapter 1, verse 16. Each one of us should be seeking to produce good fruit, meaning we should serve one another. Fruitfulness, as Paul is talking about here, is not the result of our ministry. Rather, meeting needs, doing good deeds, is being fruitful. The language of fruitful being fruitful and not being unfruitful reminds us of the person for, uh, purpose for which Christ saved us. We saw when we considered chapter 2, verse 14, where it says that Christ gave himself to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good deeds. And then as we saw in chapter 3, verse 8, where he says, those who have believed God will be careful, should be careful to engage in good deeds. Again, I remind you of what Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, that we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So God gives us opportunities to be fruitful. One of the greatest frustrations in battle 
for an attacking side and one of the greatest reliefs for the defending side are bombs that don't go off. They're duds. Satan loves Christians who don't do anything. Satan knows that every Christian who is indwelled by the Holy Spirit, who has been given gifts to serve the body, who has the word of God, is a threat to the kingdom of darkness. And so no matter how big or how small the role that Christ intends for you in his church, we must be faithful with those opportunities that the Lord gives us so that the evil one finds no opportunity to exert his influence. We must be fruitful. Now look again at verse 14 and notice how he says, we must learn to engage in good deeds, meeting pressing needs. This clearly speaks of intentionality. It requires having our antennas up, looking out for the needs that are around us. We learn to engage in good deeds, not by listening to a sermon or sitting in a classroom, but rather by doing. And the more we engage in good deeds, the more effective we become and the more sensitive to opportunities we become. It's like anything in life. The the more you practice something, the more effective we become at that thing. And so when we feel unskilled or uncertain about an opportunity, about a need that is there like AV ministry, the best thing we can do is dive in and learn. We are called to be productive in our lives and in our relationships with one another. And what that means is we are called to care for one another in word and in deed. It's what we were made for. So wherever the Lord places you, And with whomever the Lord has you in relationships, whether it's your immediate family or extended family or your co-workers or fellow students or your small group, be attentive. Be attentive to the needs that are around there and consider how you can demonstrate the sacrificial love of Christ by doing good to them. Well, speaking of love, that's the final principle we can draw from this text on how the Lord works in his church. Not only does the Lord move his people wherever he wills, not only does the Lord give varied gifts to the church and he gives us opportunities to be fruitful, but the Lord gives us a love for one another. That's principle number four. The Lord gives us a love for one another. Look at verse 15. All who are with me greet you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. In some of Paul's letters, uh, Paul will name people that he wants the recipients to greet. Uh, For example, in Romans, he spends an extended amount of time naming people to greet in other letters as well. Uh, In other letters, Paul, like here, doesn't name anybody. This would be true of Ephesians also. And what seems to be the explanation is that if Paul knew a small number of people in a given location, he would express greetings to those individuals. But if Paul knew a lot of people, he wouldn't because he didn't want to leave anybody out. Or as in the case of Ephesians, a letter written to many churches, he obviously wouldn't greet specific people in all of those churches. By not naming anyone for Titus to greet here, the implication is that Paul has personal relationships with a lot of people on the island of Crete. He loved them. He cared for them. And he knew that they loved him as well as a brother in Christ. 
Likewise, since Titus was a longtime ministry partner of Paul, wherever Paul was when he wrote this letter and with whomever he was with, Titus, they, they likely knew Titus and they said, Paul, tell Titus hello from us. This mutual greeting here is a simple statement, so easy to pass by, but it reflects Christian love and affection. When you and I write or speak to someone who's far away and who is in relationship with others that we know, we will often say, hey, say hi to so-and-so, right? I don't know about you, but I only do that if I have an affection for the other person where I want them to know that I'm thinking about them and that I want to greet them. Well, everywhere Paul went, he cultivated relationships of love and affection. I won't take the time to give many examples except for one. In 1 Thessalonians 2.8, Paul reminded the church there, having so fond an affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you had become very dear to us. Now, what's amazing about this is that according to the record of Acts, Paul was only in Thessalonica for a matter of weeks, maybe around a month or so. Whatever it was, his time there was measured by weeks and not by months or certainly not years. The letters we have of Paul indicate that this is how Paul interacted with believers wherever he went. He never acted like an itinerant preacher who was disinterested in the lives of those to whom he ministered. Everywhere he went, he shared his life with those people and he developed relationships with them. And whether he was in a city for weeks or months or years, he built relationships wherever he went. This is a good example for us who live in a transitory area. Whether this region is your lifelong home or whether it's a stop on the journey of life for you, Whatever the case, it's easy for us to keep people at length if we know they're not going to be here long or we're not going to be here long. But beloved, we are brothers and sisters in Christ. And it's our privilege to welcome those who come into the church and who are new. Uh, to love them in the faith and build relationships. Because even though it's painful to let go, it's sorrowful to say goodbye, the mutual benefit and blessings we receive during our time together are worth the difficulty of saying goodbye. And we can say goodbye knowing that the Lord is with us and the Lord is with them. And one day we will be reunited forever. So whether, again, this is your home, you were born and raised in this region, or whether you're here for school or you're here while your military orders keep you here, let us build those relationships of love and affection for one another. Well, Paul closes all his letters with some variation of his final words here. Grace be with you all. That's not a perfunctory statement that just sounds a whole lot better than the end or whatever else someone might say. It's a Christian way to encourage one another and remind each other that God's grace goes with us wherever we are. And it's also a looking to Christ as if Paul is saying, Lord, send your grace and keep your grace with Titus.
well when we're reading the Bible, it's so easy to fly through closing words like this that seem so unhelpful to us. But I hope that you've been reminded that every word of God is profitable. And that if we, if we would just take the time to meditate and consider what does this have to say to me? What are the implications for my life? We will find benefit. These instructions are over or around 2,000 years old, but we find in them valuable lessons of how the Lord works in the church even today. The Lord moves his people wherever he wills, and that remains true today. The Lord gives varied gifts to the church, and that remains true today. The Lord gives us opportunities to be fruitful, and that remains true today. And the Lord gives us a love for one another, and that is true today. Well, let's pray now and celebrate this Lord who has given himself to us. And as I pray, the men who are serving can come to the front. Lord, we come before you in awe and wonder at your magnificent grace that you have loved us beyond our comprehension. And even as we see how you worked in the history of the early church as the gospel went forth, as it went into the island of Crete and how you would move your people from here to there according to their gifts, according to the needs of the church. And you were faithful to meet those needs. And you helped those who were in the body of Christ to do good works, to meet pressing needs, to be fruitful because of the grace with which you had saved them. And you give us within the body of Christ uh, a, a new family, those whom we can love no matter what our biological family is, no matter where we're from, that we can love one another because we have been united in Christ. And we celebrate your work in our church even now. We thank you for your provision. We thank you for your overwhelming grace. And we pray that we would see this as a sign that you are with us and that we would trust in you, that we would be excited for what you are doing, and that you would glorify yourself as we are faithful to worship you. Lord, as we now prepare our hearts for your table, as if there's any sin in our lives, any bitterness in our hearts, if there's any unconfessed sin or ways in which we are not right with you or with others, May we bring that before you, knowing that you are a God who forgives. And you forgive freely if we would but confess our sin to you. And may we rejoice once again in the recollection of the sacrifice of your son. Amen.